Bibles this evening and turn with me to Jeremiah 9. We finished last week in our time together at the end of verse 2. I rolled over into Jeremiah 9 in order to emphasize what we saw at the end of chapter 8, which was this uh, deep and enduring grief that Jeremiah had over the condition of his people. And we see that continue into chapter 2, or chapter 9, excuse me, verses 1 and 2, as he proclaimed, Oh, that my head were waters, mine eyes as fountains of tears, that I may weep day and night for the slain of the daughters of my people. And this deep sorrow that he had in his heart, and through that we were compelled uh, in our application last evening to remember that there's a difference between being assimilated in culture to the world and being physically present in the world, being emotionally present in the world in a way that it causes us to invest and to reach out to people. We pick up in verse 3 this evening. You know, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. Several weeks ago, we spoke about the importance of the Word of God in our lives. The next week, we spoke about what God really wants, which is our love, our affection unto obedience. Our topic this week is kind of a combination of the two. The importance of the Word of God and what God really wants. Combined in this exhortation that we would know the Lord. How is it that we come to love God? Well, we love God by learning about Him. We comb the Word of God. We feast on the Word of God. And that brings us into this knowledge of the holy. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. And this is what we consider today. One of the pinnacles of the book of Jeremiah, in my opinion. At the end of another string of sorrowful announcements, so we'll have to trudge through a little bit of sorrow again. We kind of have to do that every week, right? We trudge through all of the evil and all of the judgment and all of the sins and all of that. And then we try to find within it um, something to, to draw out a, a truth of the Lord. Uh, of course, we don't want to lose out on the judgment part, the holiness and the righteousness part. We've come to that and we'll come to it from time to time. But it's kind of all over the place, right? It's, it's hitting us like a fire hose, really. Uh, judgment and such. And, and that would be a pretty hard thing to go through for some 50 chapters of Scripture. Except that all throughout it, what do we see? We see mercy. We see exhortations unto know, knowing the Lord. We see the exaltation of God's power and uh, uh, not next week, of course, I won't be here, but the week after that, as we get into Jeremiah 10, we're going to see this incredible contemplation of who God is, of His greatness, of the almighty power of the God that we serve. And so we'll see, we, we continue to see these things as we walk through, and they are indeed beneficial to us. So we pick up in verse 3, somewhat in the middle of a context. I'll actually begin reading in verse 1 for context, and then we'll go through to verse 3. The Bible says this, Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they be all adulterers and assembly of treacherous men. And they bend their tongues like their bow for lies. But they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they know not me, saith the Lord. The description of the people for which Jeremiah weeps focuses here upon their lies, a definitive lack of compulsion to tell the truth. It's important for us to understand that God is a God of truth. No one attribute of God exalts itself above another, but in the Proverbs 6 list of the seven things which are an abomination to the Lord, the seven things which the Lord hates, there are two of those that deal with the failure to represent the truth. There is first a lying tongue, which is on the list, and then second, a false witness that speaketh lies. 
Two of the seven speak with this misrepresentation of the truth. The first, a lying tongue, focuses more specifically on the act, the general act of misrepresenting the truth. The second, a false witness, focuses upon how one might bring the misrepresentation of truth to bear in order to negatively affect the lives of others. Falsely witnessing against someone else. Suffice it to say, God hates lies. And God hates lies because God is truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? Jesus is truth. It's not just what Jesus likes or what Jesus tells. Jesus is truth. God is truth. It is a defining characteristic of who God is. He is truth. Therefore, God hates lies. Lies are an insidious evil that strip leaders of the capacity to make decisions, judges of the capacity to judge righteous judgments, friends and neighbors of the capacity to discern, and strips everyone of the freedom of being able to trust those with whom they interact. The more I've grown in my pastorate, the more I've grown as a father, the more I've come to hate lies how I want to make a decision that's best for my children, but I just can't discern who's telling the truth because everyone is saying something different. That's extremely frustrating. She's saying one thing, she's saying another thing. This needs to be resolved, but I just don't know who's telling the truth. And I can't know who's telling the truth. <coughs> and there are ways, but it's extremely frustrating. Why? Not because I feel like my honor is being impugned, although there is a definite problem if my children are lying to me. But the frustration of not being able to do what I need to do in my family because of lies. It's the same as a pastor. Can't tell you how many times I go up to someone and say, hey, is there something wrong? No, pastor, there's nothing wrong. And then you have to find out through the grapevine there's something very wrong. Or, hey, anything major going on? No, pastor, nothing major going on. And then next thing you know, they're leaving the church because of all the major problems going on. It's extremely difficult. How can a pastor shepherd his flock if his flock lies to him when he asks how things are going? How can a leader make decisions if the information he's getting as to whether or not he needs to make a certain decision is a lie? Lies are insidious. Now, God knows our hearts, so we can't lie to God in that sense. But all of these relationships, and we'll talk about this more in our application, all of these relationships affect things as it relates to God, do they not? Affect spiritual relationships. Lies are not a minor thing. Lying is evil. It is dangerous. Lies have torn apart families. Lies have torn apart churches. Lies have torn apart societies. Lies are tearing apart our society right now, aren't they? Turn on any news channel and you know what you're going to hear? Lies. Half-truths. Convenient leaving out of information. False witnessing. And it is tearing this country apart because of lies. And if we're on God's side, then we must, as God's people, be on the side of truth. We continue talking about lies. Verses 4 through 6. Take ye heed every one of his neighbor, and trust ye not in any brother. For every brother will utterly supplant, and every neighbor will walk with slanders. And they will deceive every one his neighbor, and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies, and weary themselves to commit iniquity. Thine habitation is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, saith the Lord." Notice the insidious nature of lies as it's described in those first two verses. Jeremiah tells them to watch out for their neighbors. Don't trust anyone. Don't trust a brother because the people are looking for a way to supplant. The idea of supplanting is, aha, what vulnerability can I find in that person in order that I can get ahead at their expense? It's the idea that you sometimes see among children where one child goes around looking for the trusting kid and they find the trusting kid who will tell them all the things that he trusts him with in order that he can use that information against him. It's kind of the mafia mentality, right? That the mafia uh, wants just as much to have information uh, on people as to have money and such because information is power, 
right? If you can blackmail a person or if you can keep a person in line through power, if you can keep a person in line because you know their secrets, then you have power over them. That's the idea here. Don't trust your brother, God says in the days of Jeremiah, because every brother is looking to supplant. Every brother is looking to take any vulnerability, any handle they can get on you to twist it and to turn it, to, to use you to vault over you to get to the next level. They'll deceive everyone his brother. Men don't speak the truth. They go out of their way to lie and to cheat and to sin. We spoke a couple weeks ago about the culmination of perversion, right? It was a two-part message. We're still reading about that. In an economy of lies, truth is evil. When people come to the point where lies and truth are indiscernible, where a society or a church, or a family is at the place where they don't know what's true and what's not, and they're actually indiscernible one from another, where, where can the society go from there? Where can a family go from there? Where can a church go from there? When a person is just as likely to say a lie as to say the truth, when you hear anything out of a person's mouth and it's just as likely to be false as true, what, what can you do at that point? pray. There is such a disadvantage. There is such a disadvantage, is there not, in a society such as this that there is no way that it can function properly. Every aspect of society in the day of Israel had been overrun by falsehood. How can... I or anyone else make a worthy and viable decision upon the information that I have at hand if what I'm collecting is just as likely to be false as true. In Israel, in Jerusalem at that time, every aspect, civil society, religious society, it was all touched by lies so that the truth was impossible to discern. I misspoke. Hard to discern. Not impossible. Why not impossible? Because there was still a man Proclaiming the word of God, which is and always will be true. Through deceit, the nation had refused to know the Lord. But here's the thing. God was still calling them to know him. And in the knowledge of the Lord, in the knowledge of the holy, is understanding. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. There is still a place where a man or a woman or a child can go where they know it's true, where there is no gray area, where they can step into it and dwell under the shade of the tree and drink from the well in the oasis of truth. And it's the same thing now as it was then. It is the word of God. And the word of God was still being proclaimed. Jeremiah continues, verses 7 through 9. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will melt them and try them, for how shall I do for the daughter of my people? Their tongue is as an arrow shot out. It speaketh deceit. One speaketh peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lieth in wait, layeth in wait. Shall I not visit them for these things, saith the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? This is the second archery illustration we've seen in the book. Earlier, we saw God say that they bend their tongues like you would bend a bow. The idea there is uh, if you have a bow and it's unstrung, the, the tension is, is, is out of it and it's fairly straight. But then when you are ready to shoot it, when you're ready to put it into action, you would take the, the string and you would string that bow. You'd have to bend that bow to, to, to string it and then that bow is now bent by the, the string in order to make the bow ready to be used. They bend their tongues in that manner. In other words, the idea being that they're that they're not speaking true statements. Here he says again, their tongue is as an arrow shot out. So first they bend it, right? They bend the bow and then they shoot it. So they lie, but their lies are not just lies. Their lies are lies intended to harm others. They are shot out so that one speaks peaceably with his neighbor while in his heart he's looking for that way to destroy them. Evil. Evil. So God says, I will melt them. 
This is the picture of the refinement, right, of a metal where God's judgment will pour upon them and he will try them and he will melt them. He will burn them. He will burn off their evil. God says, should I not? Is it not right for me to visit these things? Is it not right for me to judge a nation such as this? Honesty forms the bedrock of a functional group. Be it marriage, family, church, civil society, employment, whatever it might be. When trust breaks down, when a person can look you in the eye, say one thing, and do or mean the opposite, when they can look you in the eye, smile in your face, say they want your best, and then turn around and stab you in the back, the group already ceases to be functional. At this point, it is chaos, it is anarchy, it is every man for himself, and there is nothing, certainly nothing godly in that, there's nothing functional in that either. But when it comes to the spiritual, a church, in, in our case, in this case the nation of Israel, under the covenant of God, it is not just dysfunction, it is abomination to the Lord. And the judgment upon such a people, verses 10 and 11. For the mountains will I take up a weeping and wailing. For the habitations of the wilderness a lamentation because they are burned up so that none can pass through them. Neither can men hear the voice of the cattle. Both the fowl of the heavens and the beast are fled. They are gone. And I will make Jerusalem heaps and a den of dragons. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. God says he will weep and wail for the nation, the mountains and the wilderness, because they are about to be emptied without inhabitant. God, who desires, as we know from Scripture, he desires life. He desires to love and to bless his people. This is what God wants to do. His eyes are upon his land. We know that. We'll watch as that land goes vacant and the voice of rejoicing in the land is silenced by the bitterness of judgment. This is not what God wants, but this is what the land needed because of their evil. God desired to bless his people. God desired to see them in joy and peace, but God is just. So the city of Zion, he says, must become a den for dragons without inhabitants and a desolation. Verse 12 and 13. Who is the wise man that may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord hath spoken that he may declare it? For what the land perisheth, excuse me, yes, for what the land perisheth and is burned up like a wilderness that none passeth through. And the Lord said, because they have forsaken my law which I set before them and have not obeyed my voice neither walked therein. God asks a question. We've seen it several times already. This reasonableness standard, right? It's reasonable to obey the Lord when you hear what the Lord has done. It's reasonable to turn back to Him. It's reasonable to repent. It's reasonable to flee to Him for mercy. God says, who is wise enough to understand this? Who is wise enough to understand that judgment is coming? Who is wise enough to recognize that you are doing something wrong? Who has the discernment left within them to understand just how severe the evil is that they are performing? Is there anyone who has the heart that is close enough to the Lord to see it? Who has heard the declarations of the Lord, the truths of God's word, and believed them and sought repentance and sought for life and, and decided that they're going to do it God's way? Is there anyone who has the understanding to seek the true reason why the land will be judged and then to identify it and get it out of the land? And if there is, this is what they will hear. The land perishes and is burning because the people have forsaken the law of their God because they have not obeyed the voice of the Lord because the people have not walked in obedience. What's the solution? Know the Lord. Verse 14. Continuing. But have walked after the imagination of their own hearts and after Balaam, which their fathers taught them. It's a clear distinction in Scripture between the imagination of one's own hearts, the natural inclinations of a carnal man in the way of the Lord. One goes one way, the other goes the other way. No man has ever followed the nat natural inclinations of his heart into the law of God. 
No man has ever followed the natural inclinations of their heart into righteousness. He may follow the natural inclinations of his heart into self-discipline and moral living. He may follow the natural inclinations of his heart into religious zeal and compliance. These are just as much and just as possibly a product of the flesh as they are of the spirit. But no man has ever walked in the imaginations of his own heart unto the truths of the word of God in their truth. In this case, God says they've walked after Balaam. This is not Balaam, B-A-L-A-A-M, like the prophet in the days of Israel, Numbers 22. This is Balaam, B-A-A-L-I-M, which is the plural of Baal, which was the god of the land, right? The choices of this generation have mimicked the choices of the previous They have followed after the gods of the land as their fathers taught them to do. The choices of generations gone by, this is not a good enough reason to ignore the testimony of the word of God. The fact that our fathers may have lived generally comfortable lives while possibly pursuing any manner of error does not make that error justifiable. The fact that a church still exists in the generations following its descent into pragmatism or into compromise does not commend the pragmatism or the compromise. It is only a temporary situation, a testimony to the long-suffering of God. It's incumbent upon every generation of God's followers to place their loyalty upon one thing and one thing alone, to maintain their perspective on life through one thing and one thing alone, and that thing is the knowledge of the holy, because that is where understanding is found. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. You want to know what's right and wrong? There's a lot of pragmatism out there. There's a lot of should I, shouldn't I, what's right, what's wrong, what way up, what way down. Let's start with this. Let's just start with the character of God and the word of God. Let's make that our baseline and then we can get into all of those other scenarios. But let's just start with this one thing. We can't call right what God calls wrong. We can't call right what God says is evil. We can't say truth is only necessary as long as we're both playing by the rules. We can't say lies are okay as long as those lies are working in my favor. We can't say that. We can't go down that path. Verse 15 and 16, Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, even this people, with wormwood and give them water of gall to drink. I will scatter them also among the heathen whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send a sword after them till I have consumed them. Because the nation had continued in their sins, in the sins of their fathers, justifying themselves by the fact that they say, this is what my dad taught me. This is what the parents taught me. This is what the fathers have done, so we're just doing it too. Don't blame us, God. God is blaming you because you have the word of God. It is there. The prophet Jeremiah is not proclaiming these things to their fathers. He's proclaiming it to them. So he says, I'll give them wormwood to eat and gall to drink. Both very bitter substances meant to symbolize the fact that there would be a bitterness in their soul because of their choices. What bitterness of soul touches the hearts of people today? What sorrow and guilt and shame touches the hearts of people today? Depressions and anxieties and fears and angers. Could it be that this is the natural outworking of a, of a sin-sick society that has deeply affected them so that they are, if I may use the term, dr- eating wormwood and drinking gall? So that the hearts of the people in our culture, perhaps the people in some of our families, uh, God forbid, the hearts of our church are, are in bitterness because of judgment. Not only would they face bitterness, but the Bible says, of course, that they would be scattered among the heathen. Could it be that the gods unto whom the world turns for enjoyment are actually tormenting them. So God says that they would be consumed. Verses 17 and 18. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider ye, and call for the mourning women, that they may come, and send for for cunning women, that they may come. 
And let them make haste and take up a wailing for us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids gush out with waters. Very similar idea there of the the tears gushing out of eyes and mourning. The Lord calls for his people, the people of God, the nation of Israel, to consider just to think, to exercise their reason, that if any man will hear, will consider, if he will think, he will find the call of the Lord reasonable. And if he finds the call of the reasonable, the, the call of the Lord reasonable, what is next? Mourn. Repent, right? Repent. Call for the mourners, the skillful women, the mourning women. Uh, This would be the professional class of mourners in that day. We see this in Jesus' day as well, that generally speaking, just as today in a funeral, we hire certain things. uh, There there are certain traditions. One of the things that they hired in that day, they would hire a group of mourners. And those people would come, and and they know how to mourn really well, and they would mourn at the, the, the funeral. They would mourn as the bears being taken down to the sepulcher. They would mourn. And and they were very cunning and skillful at doing this. So they are called the cunning women, the, mo- the, the, the mourning women here. Call for these women, these skillful women, the mourners, and mourn. Hire them to, 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 to mourn. This, this, this kind of idea is what we might kind of see in Nineveh in the days of Jonah when Jonah said, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. And not only did the people rend their clothes and put sackcloth and ashes on their heads, but they put ashes on their cow's heads, right? On on the heads of their cattle. The idea was, can we, is there any way that we can show more repentance? Is there any way we can show more sorrow? Yeah, put ashes on that cow over there too. Not just on me, but on on the cow and, and, and Fido. Let's get ashes on him and let's get ashes on little kitty over here so that God can see just how important this is to me. The idea here is hire the mourners, have them mourn yourself. Hire the mourners. Mourn, everyone mourn. Get, get everyone mourning. Get everyone repenting. Get everyone sorrowful. Show God just how sorry you are for the state of your, of, of your people, for the sins that you've committed. Make haste, he says, that the eyes of the people may run down, may pour, may gush with water and with tears. Verse 19, for a voice of wailing is heard out of Zion. How are we spoiled? We are greatly confounded because we have forsaken the land, because our dwellings have cast us out. God calls for the people to mourn, and this, is, this would be the content he would desire them to mourn. This would be the thing he would desire to hear out of them. We're spoiled, we're confounded, because we've forsaken the land. They have been spoiled by their sin. Verses 20 and 21. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O ye women. And let your ear receive the word of his mouth and teach your daughters wailing and every one her neighbor lamentation. For death is come up into our windows and is entered into our palaces to cut off the children from without and the young men from the streets. God thus calls the women, that would be these professional mourners again, to teach their daughters to wail. There's not enough women wailing. We need more women to wail. Because if you don't today get down on your knees and mourn for your sin, I guarantee you God says tomorrow you're going to need more people to wail for the destruction that's coming to you. That's the idea here. Not a very pleasant idea, to be sure. But notice the results. Verse 22. Speak, thus saith the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as dung upon the open field. And as the handful after the harvestmen, and none shall gather them. Several times now in Jeremiah, we've seen this idea that there will be so many dead bodies after this judgment that there will be no place to bury them. There won't even be enough people left to bury the dead. So we see this contrast, right? On the one way, it's destruction, mourning because of destruction. On the other way, it's, it's, it's mourning unto repentance, mourning through repentance unto deliverance. And that brings us to the, the, what God is asking of them here. What God is calling them unto. Verses 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness judgment and righteousness in the earth for in these things I delight saith the Lord interesting huh we memorized that verse I encouraged you to memorize 23 and 24 if you were up to it a couple months ago interesting though when you 
The impact of these verses when you read them in this context, right? Lying and deceit and evil and backbiting. No one's speaking the truth. Society is crumbling because there's no capacity to understand what's true and what's false. Then God says, know what I delight in. I delight in loving kindness and judgment and righteousness. I delight in the knowledge of the Lord. I delight in truth. Don't glory, God says, in your wisdom. Don't glory in that. Don't glory in your might, he says to the mighty. Don't glory in your riches, he says to the wealthy. These are all things that we commend ourselves for on this earth. These are all things for which people are commended. Today is Sunday, which means for the majority of, of the, we'll, we'll call it maybe not a majority, for a large number of people in the United States of America, their church is in the football stadium, Right? And in the football stadium, the glory of these people is rooted in their statistics. Their glory is rooted in their capacity to catch a ball or throw a ball or kick a ball or, or run a ball or stop any of those things from happening. God says none of that has any glory. There's no glory in that. There's no glory in wisdom, earthly wisdom. There's no glory in might. There's no glory in riches. If anyone desires to glory in something that's worth glorying in, there is one thing. There's one true standard of glory. The only man that has whereof to glory is the man that knows the Lord. And the more you know the Lord, the more you can glory. The man who recognizes what God truly loves, loving kindness and judgment and righteousness, and seeks to live by and exercise those virtues, that is worth something. That's worth something. That's the only thing that's worth anything. If there's any standard of glory, if there's anything by which a man should be proud, it should only be on this account, that he can glory and that he understands the Lord and that he has sought to live by the character of the Lord as his guide. Naturally, you would expect, we'll come back to this in our, in our application. Verses 25 and 26, as we close out the chapter here. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will punish all them which are circumcised with the uncircumcised, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the children of Ammon and Moab and all that are in the uttermost corners, utmost corners, excuse me, that dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Interesting contrast, right? God declares that there's going to be a time if they don't seek to know the Lord, when it doesn't matter if you're circumcised in flesh or uncircumcised in your flesh. He says, sure, the, the heathen are uncircumcised in flesh, but Israel is uncircumcised in heart. Neither one loves God, neither one knows God, neither one has sought for the Lord. He says, therefore, there's coming a time when they will all be judged together, when they will all be punished together. Because what is it that God wants? God doesn't want us circumcised or uncircumcised. That's not the standard for glory. The standard for glory is not our associations, the clubs we're involved in. It's not what we wear on a Sunday. The standard for glory, the standard for exaltation before the Lord is this. Do you have a knowledge of the holy? Do you know the Lord? Do you know Him unto salvation, of course, first and foremost? Are you then growing in your knowledge of Him? Are you exercising the knowledge of Him? Are you living in the knowledge that you have of Him? Is that your... Do you wake up with it? Do you go to bed with it? Is it everything in between? Let's apply. Number one, cling to truth in a society of lies. Cling to truth in a society of lies. We, like the nation of Israel at the time of Jeremiah, live in a society where lies are the mainstream. Turn on the news, as we mentioned, any news, you'll hear lies or slants or slanders or half-truths or deceits. That's what you'll hear. Listen to any leader at any level of government. You'll hear lies. Read the science journals to decide. This one really gets me. What should I do with my children? How should I, how, how should I do it? Should I give them vaccines? Should I not give them vaccines? I just saw an article today, Israel Research, two independent studies said probiotics might actually be bad for your system. After all these years of them saying, give your kids probiotics, do probiotics, everyone do probiotics. Now the science is coming in, the science is coming in, right? Probiotics are bad. Who knows? 
For years, it's don't give your kids peanuts under two. Now they're saying give your kids peanuts. Who knows, right? Who knows? Who knows if it's the pharmacy company that's sponsoring this study or the pharmacy company that's studying? Who knows? I don't know. I can't know. I'm so frustrated. I want to do what's best for my child. How can I do what's best for my child? I can't. I just have to wing it. Hope it works out. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Got a little distracted there for a moment. Businesses, right? They claim your privacy. They have your privacy in mind, right? But actually, what are they doing? They're selling your information to the lowest bidder or highest bidder or anyone in between. We're in a society of lies. And the whole society feels this frustration. It's the reason that people vote with their emotions, more interested in punishing their enemies than seeking good. Because in a society of lies, frustration is all you've got left. It's for this reason that people become hardened to the claims of businesses because the love of money is indeed the root of all evil and you can't trust any big corporation to have your interests in mind. It is even for this reason that people won't trust their pastors because religion has its own priorities and excesses and agendas. We read in our missionary letter about the frustrations right now in Ireland over the Catholic Church. How many people not knowing their left hand from their right, will be turned away from the truth of God by the evil, corrupt cancer of fornication that has come to light over recent weeks in the Catholic Church. The tremendous cancerous evil that pervades the Catholic Church from the Pope on down. And how many people will be turned away from the truth just associating the Catholic Church with the Bible? How many people will stand frustrated and alienated by a society where truth happens to be whatever the man in power says it is? Where does a man turn in a society of lies to find truth? There's only one place to turn. We've mentioned it already. And that place is right here. This is what we cling to. This is what we have. This is what we hold on to. The Bible is our anchor throughout this sea of life. No matter what the storm, the truth of God's word remains unchanging and it holds. It holds us firm. And as we cling to the truths of the word of God, as we live them out in our lives, we create communities of followers in Christ who we can trust. One of the bedrocks of this community, the church, is that we trust each other. This is the design of the church, that each man would esteem other better than himself, that each man would place the needs and the desires of other above his own. And in doing so, we create this faith community where our yay means yay and our nay means nay. And to this end, let me ask you a question in this first point. As we call on one another to cling to truth in a society of lies, are you trustworthy? Are you telling the truth? We're building this church here, and one of the bedrocks of this church is that we fully expect and anticipate that we will love and trust one another. But one of the dangers of love, of course, is that those who you love the most and those who you trust the most are simultaneously those unto whom you make yourself most vulnerable and therefore those that can hurt you the most. It is that way. It has to be that way. If I am going to invite you into my life, then I am giving you a, 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 an opportunity to hurt me in a way that my neighbor cannot if I have not invited them in. This is simply the manner of being. Because we, are let, we let those who we trust and love in to come past our armor, if you will. And this makes us vulnerable. And that isn't comfortable. But brethren, this is how God has designed us to operate. To this end, we are careful about things such as who becomes a member of the church. You don't just walk up and say, I want to become a member. And we say, okay, become a member because members are trusted. But if our church cannot operate in truth and trust, simply put, it cannot operate the way God has desired it to operate. So the question is this, particularly to our members, and, 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 but to everyone, of course. Are you a help or a hindrance to what the church is intended to be here? Are you a truth teller? Are you honest? 
Or is there always an ulterior motive, a personal agenda? You're saying what you're saying in order to get a response because that's what you want or need or expect or whatever the case may be. And I'm not just saying backbiting or, 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 or backstabbing. What about the idea that somebody comes up to you and says, hey, could you tell me how that went today? Or can you tell me how I'm doing? Or do you see a blind spot? And you say, no, 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 you're fine because you don't want them to feel bad about themselves and you're lying to them. Because there actually is a glaring error that they need to get taken care of. But you're lying to them because you either don't want to spend the time to invest in them, don't want to have to explain yourself, or don't want them to feel bad. How can we function in this way? Blind spots are, by their very nature, blind spots, right? If I, if, if, if I could see it, it wouldn't be a blind spot. The fact that it's a blind spot means I can't see it. Does your pastor have blind spots? You bet I do. What are they? I don't know. They're in my blind spot. But I bet many of you know. I bet you do. I bet you drive home talking about them with your family. Pastor said this. Pastor did that. You hear pastor say that again. How many times did he say that word? Right? That was really distracting. Who's, who's going to come up and tell me that, I would, that you were excessively distracted by what I said so that I can correct it? Right? Who's going to love me enough to tell me the truth. This is the church. This is what churches are intended to do. How is our church this evening? Are we clinging to the truths of God's word? Are we exemplifying these truths in the body? Are we living out the knowledge of the holy in our body? Are we living it out in how we treat one another? How about your family? Are you able to trust each other in your family? to tell each other the truth? Or are you a family that operates within the context of deceits and lies? It's kind of an every man for himself situation. Everything has to be validated by two or three witnesses. <laughs> Children, have you taken to hiding things from your parents, lying to them, deceiving them because you want to do things that you know they won't let you do? Or because you're afraid of how they'll react if you tell them the truth? If you're living this way, would you reconsider it this evening? Would you just stop living under a, an umbrella of lies? Just get it right with your parents, get it out and start living the truth. Spouse. Have you taken to lying to your spouse? Hiding things from each other? Saying things to further your agenda or to not stir up trouble with your spouse within the family? Can I urge you to reconsider this evening, to repent, to clear the air for the sake of your soul and for the sake of your family? Church, are we lying to one another? Are we working the angles among the body, working with people, telling them things, manipulating them to get them on our side, to get what we want out of this body? Speaking well of people one moment, slandering them the next, speaking well to their face, scheming behind their backs, trying to manipulate things into our, uh, into our favor. These concepts are death, destruction, bitterness of soul, evil before the Lord. They lead to a spiritual drought which can only be recovered through repentance. How are we doing this evening? Can, our, can we say that our interactions are honest before men so that you feel that what you say is true so that you know that what you say is true so that you say what you mean and you mean what you say so that you can trust me and I can trust you. What a wonderful thing. If we could go throughout our week and hear what everyone's saying and read the newspaper and listen to the news unless you don't want ulcers and then just don't and then you can come into this building on a Sunday, or you can step through the door of a church member or, or, or one that's associated in the week, and, and you can know that they're telling you the truth. What an oasis of joy and of peace to know that truth is being told, to know that we love each other enough to speak the truth one to another. And this is the concept as we see it in Scripture. This is how believers ought to live. Let me prove it. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, and then verses 16 and 17. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. 
in honor, preferring one another. Verse 16, be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Love one another. Cleave to the good. Kindly affectioned in brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another, holding you above me. This is how we are called to function. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, you know it. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but what? But rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. We're members. Wouldn't it be a bummer if your knee lied to you? If it didn't have anything wrong with it, but it was just constantly in pain? I'm hurt, I'm hurt, but you're not hurt. It's just sending you ghost pain signals all the time just because it feels like it. That'd be a hard way to live. And then when I do get hurt, I won't know that it's hurt because it's always hurt, right? But we're members one of another and yet there are people that are constantly lying to one another. How can I know what's true if you're always lying? Do this with my kids, right? How can I know that you're actually sick at bedtime if you're sick every night at bedtime? Even though you're not sick at bedtime. How can then I know? How can we know how the body is doing? How can we know what needs to be taken care of? How can we know what's right and what's wrong? How can we navigate this thing together called life in the Spirit of God as a church if we are lying one to another? Verse 31 as we skip. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. But pastor, you have no idea how inconvenient it would be to go up to someone and tell them what I'm actually feeling. You have no idea the can of worms that's going to open. I might actually have to deal with people then deal with people. Get it out. Get it right. Help them. Do what's right. Please the Lord. Look every man on the things of others. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not Knoweth not God, for God is love. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. You don't love, it's because you don't know God well enough to recognize that this is what a believer does. We could go on, we could go to verse after verse. We could spend our whole night just quoting verses about truth and love. Siblings, don't lie to each other. Children, don't lie to your parents. Spouses, don't lie to each other. Church member, don't lie to each other. Don't lie to your pastor. Pastor, don't lie to your congregation. There are any number of flaws which we all have, any number of bad decisions which we will all make, but if we are not honest with one another, if we can't trust one another, then we will never be able to be what God could make this church. And it all begins with trusting the Word of God, enough to recognize that God is the one and only source of truth and that as He is truth, so too we ought to be. Trust God, who has magnified his word above his own name, the only person who will never fail you. Number two, first point, cling to truth in a society of lies. Number two, cling to righteousness for the sake of your soul. God used two primary pictures to describe the consequences of the nation's rebellion in this chapter. He spoke of a lifelessness, a lifeless wilderness without inhabitant, and then he spoke of the feeding of wormwood and the drinking of gall, that bitterness. Both are very adequate and distinct descriptions of a soul under the influence of a life of unrighteousness. 
When the Bible says the wages of sin is death, the Bible means it. There is a parching of the soul. There is a dryness that comes to the soul when we are living in unrighteousness and we are bearing the wages of that sin. We as believers are called to cling to righteousness because we are called to regard the warnings of the Word of God. And if the knowledge of the holy is understanding, if knowing God is understanding, then what we know of God is that we must cleave to Him, cleave to His characteristics, cleave to righteousness. These warnings tell us that those who play around with sin, those who pursue the pleasures of sin for a season, those who go down that path of sin do so at the expense of their own soul. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about what happens in any person's soul when they sin, when they pursue sin, when they dwell in unrighteousness. Maybe for some pastor, but I've been fine. It hasn't affected me. It has. You, you, you haven't seen it. Why haven't you seen it? Well, because the way of the wicked is darkness. They know not at what they stumble. But it's happening. And it will continue to happen until you repent There's no getting around that system. There's no getting around the sowing and reaping principle. Galatians chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Do you have the faith to believe that when you do wrong, you need to repent, you need to get right, you need to confess it, you need to forsake it right away so that it is not taking you down a path of darkness, so it is not causing a famine in your soul. Finally, this evening, point number three, if you glory in anything at all, let it be the Lord. Our best example of this from the New Testament, apart from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, is, of course, the Apostle Paul. Several times in the epistles, he tells us that he has set aside all glories for the glory of knowing God, Philippians 3, 8 through 10, right? If he's going to have any marks, he says, with which he would glory, he says, my marks of glory are the scars that you can see on me that bear the marks of the suffering for Christ, right? He says that. As he walks through the points of glory, he says, stoned, beaten, shipwrecked. Those are his glory marks, right? Not... Knows the entire Pentateuch by heart, which he probably did. Not, not all of the things that he talks about right before he says he counted it all dung, right? Hebrew of the Hebrews, stock of Benjamin, all of that. He, he, that, that. That's not the stuff he goes down when he goes down his list of glories. He goes down, yep, I was, I was preaching the gospel so vehemently there that they kicked me out of that city. Yeah, I was preaching the gospel so strongly there they wanted to kill me there. Yeah, I was preaching the gospel there and they had to lower me from the city wall by a basket or else they were going to kill me. They'd already locked the doors to keep me in to find me to kill me. Yep, yep, I was shipwrecked that time for the Lord as I was doing the Lord's will. Yep, I was shipwrecked that time as I was doing the Lord's will. Yep, yep, I was, I was a day and night in the deep that time as I was floating around on that log because I was following the Lord's will. Those are the marks of His glory. What are the marks of His glory? The fact that He was pursuing with all His heart a knowledge of the Lord, not just in mind, but experientially. That I may know, know Him and the power of His resurrection and the what? Fellowship of His suffering being made conformable unto his death. Paul was not just a glutton for punishment, though. Paul had eyes to see where true glory was found. Paul twice quotes this passage, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, in the New Testament. We read first in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Here it is, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. We can glory in our own accomplishments, in our own power, in our own might, in the things that we have earned, in the things that we have learned, 
But none of it will mean a thing in eternity unless it has been used for the purposes of God. My intellect means nothing except to the extent that God was able to use my intellect to bring people into the kingdom to, 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 to affect the kingdom of God. My might means nothing except to the degree that whatever amount of energy I might have is directed toward the purpose of glorifying the Lord. The wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. The strength of this world is nothing to God. God doesn't need our resources. What does God want? He wants us. He wants us. The knowledge of the holy. That is understanding. To glory in the Lord is to find our glory in that which pleases the Lord. To find our glory in the things in which God delights. And may it be so. Paulos also quotes Jeremiah 9 in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We read in verses 13 through 18. But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed unto uh, to us, a measure to reach even unto you. In other words, he says, I'm not boasting by man's standard. If I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast by God's standard. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reached not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things within our measure, by our standard, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope, when your faith is increased, that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. A little bit confusing there. We won't walk through it all in its fullness tonight, but the idea is this. Once again, it is not about who approves me. It's about whether or not the Lord approves of me. That is what matters. It doesn't matter how strong you are, how strong you think you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how smart you think you are. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are or how wealthy you think you are. The basis of glory is the commendation of the Lord. You may not be the smartest person, but an intellect, minimal though it may be, wholly invested in the Lord and His purposes is far greater to God than any genius. You may not be the strongest, most charismatic, most capable, but if what you have is 100% submitted to the Lord, that is where glory is found. We need to see the world this way because this is how God sees the world and it's how He calls us to see the world. The world around us puts statues up for men of great accomplishment. But those names, by and large, will not be the ones who for eternity will be known among the legions of the faithful. Our heroes are not men and women who have conquered nations and cured diseases and invented great technologies. The heroes among our community are men and women who have been scorned, who have been scoffed, who have been beaten, who have lost everything that this world has to offer. Our heroes are those who have counted the things of the world to come as greater value than the things that are. Our heroes are the ones who have looked ahead, who have seen the prize of the heavenly calling, and who have pursued it with all their might, many even unto death or destitution, or shame, or contempt. Those are our heroes because those are the ones in the heavenlies who will be glorified. Those are the ones in the heavenlies who will be commended by our Lord. Those are the ones in the heavenlies who will have the prize. And that's the only place where any glory matters at all. And if you and I are proud of anything if we are proud of anything that we are or have become, if we are proud of anything that our church is or could be, let it be that we know the Lord. Let it be that we have exercised ourselves in that knowledge unto the Lord. Let it be only the extent to which whatever it is that we glory in reflects a knowledge of the holy and is a reflection of the person and work of Jesus Christ. How are you doing this evening? 
Are you caught in the trap of glorying in things that have no profit? Are you caught in the trap of having to live under the expectation of others who desire to glory in you among things that have no profit? In other words, what I mean by that is you're so caught up in so-and-so saying, this is what matters, that you've forgotten that God's the only one that really has a say? Have you failed to follow the way of truth? To love and regard those around you as better than yourself by speaking truth? Are you held by some bitterness of soul due to your own love for unrighteousness? These are the three questions we ask ourselves this evening. The virtues of truth, the virtues of righteousness, the virtues of the knowledge of the Lord and our glory in it, these are the virtues that mark the beloved. The blessed of God, where true glory, heavenly glory, eternal glory are found. May God help us to live them out in our lives. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.